right, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 7 as we continue to make our way to the book of Romans. Uh, We were off last week as we had a guest speaker, uh, Jim Franklin, in. It was a very blessed time if you guys were here. Uh, But we find ourselves back in the book of Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 13. All right, Romans 7, 7 through 13. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, so a lot in there. Let me pray for God's grace as we open up his word tonight. Lord God, as we look to your word, we ask for your grace that we would have a proper understanding Lord, I pray that we would see the goodness of your law, that we would see our own sin, we'd see our desperate need for Christ, and God, we'd see how beautiful and amazing your grace is. Lord, I ask that you would use me, your servant. God, help me in my weakness. I pray that you'd be glorified. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, years ago, it's been it's been a while since uh, we used to have this on occasion. Uh, TYG cookoff. How many guys have ever been part of a TYG cookoff? Wow. Okay. So actually, not many. Um, just some of you you order from the staff and maybe some seniors. So TYG cookoff. We need to have it again sometime soon, right, Jonah? Yeah, he's been asking for it. Uh, basically, was all the students would make some kind of dish, some kind of you know whatever, and it's like a game, like a food game show or something. And so the staff would be these judges, and we'd, we'd tally at all these points, and the winner, Kaylee, you won one year, it was your cake pops, I remember. Uh, it was really, really good. And so all the students would, would make something, and then we'd judge it, and then we you know, winner, blah, blah, okay. One of the most memorable, <laughs> so see, you guys who were there know this, uh, was from a student, I'm not going to say his name, although some of you guys may already know, but I'm not going to say him because he doesn't want me to say so he's, in this room? he's not in this room, but his siblings are. His younger siblings are. Uh, anyways, this individual, he made this thing that he called friendship bread. And uh, so it's like this little loaf of friendship bread. You know, and so you have to understand, everything's like decadent, and it's like glorious, and there's this presentation, and everyone's like, oh, this is so good. And so he brings this, this friendship bread, and he's talking up. You have to like give a story. And he's like, I call it friendship bread. And it's this whole story of why it's friendship bread, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what the story was. But we're all excited to eat it. And as we all take a bite, all the staff, we're looking at each other like, 
what on earth is this? It was the most disgusting thing we've ever had. But he was like so like, oh, I love this recipe. It's so good. And so we're like, yeah, it's great. But like I think someone on staff like barfed. Like it was so, so bad. And what happened was instead of sugar, he put salt in it and he like tripled the recipe for the salt. He did this on purpose as a gag to, like, get at the staff. Like, ha ha, look how disgusting it was. Because he put so much salt. I mean, cups and cups and cups of salt. I mean, literally, it was like, like you just drank out of the Dead Sea. Like, it was disgusting. Okay? Now, it's not that salt is bad. I actually really like salt. I prefer salty things than sweet things. But salt used in that way, in that application, was horrible. Like, you probably could have put that same amount of salt, however many cups of salt he had, you could have put it in a giant pot of soup, and it probably would have made it taste pretty good. But to misuse salt like that was a costly mistake for the staff. It wasn't the salt's fault. Salt was fine. It was the person who misused the salt. That was the problem, right? That's what we're getting. I want you to think through that as we talk about the law. As we talk about the law, it's not about that the law is bad. But how it can be misused in its context can be very, very detrimental. Now, in the previous six verses, Romans 7, 1 through 6, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul gives an illustration of marriage, you might remember, and how that the death of a spouse frees the other person now to remarry. And the point that Paul was making was to show that the Christian has died to the law and is now free to be joined to Christ. In fact, Paul has been talking pretty poorly about the law up to this, up to this point in, uh, in Romans. And so coming off that illustration, we would naturally begin questioning the law. We might ask, well, Paul, since you've shown, right, over the last few chapters... Since you've shown that we can't be justified, we can't be saved through keeping the law, and since you've shown that the law stirs up in us a desire to sin, and since you've said that we're now dead to the law, is the law even good? Should, should, should we just throw it away? Is there a purpose to the law? Or even, is the law sinful? And these would be good questions to ask. With the exception to the fact that it's preposterous and it's outrageous to, 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 to even think the idea that anything God commands is deficient or let alone be sinful. That's why Paul says, once again, as we've seen him say before, emphatically, by no means. Right in verse 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? And he's like, by no means. Like, no, you can't say that it's sin. But Paul anticipated this question. In fact, he likely already dealt with these opposing questions already. And so in light of that, we see in this passage that Paul shows the purpose of the law as well as the fruit that comes from the law. Just because we've been saying, yeah, law can't do this, law can't do that, law can't do this, doesn't mean that the law is completely bad or even that it is bad. But there is purpose. There is fruit that comes from it. While it cannot save, while the Christian is no longer bound to it, the law is still good. There is still great purpose and fruit that comes from the law. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the purpose and we're going to look at the fruit of the law. All right. So first, 
The purpose of the law. Verses 7 and 8, we see the purpose of the law. The law is not sin, right? He says by no means. But while the law is not sin, those two have a close relationship to one another. The law and sin have a very close relationship to one another. So as we look at the purpose of the law, we're going to see two ways in which the law and the sin are closely related. Okay, first in verse 7, we see that the law reveals sin. The law reveals sin. Let me read it for you. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so the law reveals sin. Sin is simply failure to meet God's standards. And what the law does is it helps us accurately and correctly identify our sins. How are we to know God's will? How are we to know what is right and wrong? How are we to know if we are in sin or not? Simple. By looking at the law of God. It is his law and it is, it is him that we are directly sinning against. God and his law. Now we may disobey earthly laws. We may break the rules of maybe the authorities or the establishments over us. But when we do, we typically only view them as maybe just, ah, oh, yeah, that was just me misbehaving. Oh, yeah, that was just me breaking the rules. You know, your mom says, oh, you, you can't eat that candy before dinner. But you sneak a couple Tootsie Rolls and you're like, yeah, you know, I was, just, I was just misbehaving a little bit. Or the teacher says, yeah, you can't, is what I say in my class, you can't throw a pen across the room. And they do. And so you broke the rules. So now you have to see Mr. Duncan for detention at lunch. <laughs> which nobody wants to have lunch with Mr. Duncan. Right? And so we just see, like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's just, but we're, we're usually pretty casual about it. We're casual, yeah, I just threw a pen across the room. I shouldn't have done that. The danger is when we bring that same mindset before God. We casually break his law, assuming it's no big deal. And the fact that we experience God's patience and mercy daily causes us to continue to take sin lightly. Does anyone remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Woo! So someone remembers, yeah, right? So what happened? Ananias and Sapphira, right? They they lied to Peter about the proceeds of the land they sold. They said, yeah, we're giving our money to the church of the, the, the proceeds of what we sold to our land, you know, of our land, but they didn't sell all of it, right? I mean, though they sold all of it, they didn't give all of it, right? But they kept a portion of it. And so they lied about it. And what happened? Boom, instantly, on the spot, struck down dead. Just fell down to Peter's feet, dead. And that was Ananias, the husband. He said, yep, this is, this is what we sold it for. Boom, he's dead on the ground. And then they carry his body off. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in. And they ask Sapphira, hey, uh, so, how, you know, is, is this what happened? Like, how much suffering? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's the amount. Boom, she's dead, on the spot, instantly. Now, maybe you're like, whoa, like, that's a little harsh. Like, God, like, they just said, like, they still gave, a, you know, a lot of money to the church. It was, just a, it was just a lie, you know? They just kind of bent the truth a little bit. Like, that's, isn't that a little extreme? No, it's not. God was just in that. God was right to do so. And we may feel that it's harsh because that's not what we experience because we lie all the time probably in bigger ways than that. But that is what every single one of us deserve as well. Every time we sin. But God is patient. And God is merciful with us daily. 
But he would be perfect and just to not have so much patience with us. But he chooses to do so. And how do we typically respond to his patience? By taking our sin lightly. By saying, oh yeah, I, I got away with it, it was okay, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal. And so we continue in it. And we continue in it. Not realizing who we are offending, who we are sinning against. And so we become flippant with our sin. We become casual with our sin. But what the law does is that it shows us that the bad things that we do, it's not just, oh, that's a bad thing that I shouldn't have done. But it is a sin and a serious offense against God himself that we are going against his very word. Now, we must remember, though, that sin is not just this outward performance of just keeping your ducks in a row and just checking the boxes off and saying, okay, you know, I make sure I'm doing this and I make sure I'm not doing this. And then there, I'm good. As long as my life out here is looking right. Sin is about our heart. Sin is about our inward motive. In fact, this is a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount, right? One of Jesus' most famous sermons that he preached. And it's a big issue that Jesus and the Pharisees had together. Because the Pharisees would do all these good things. And the Pharisees would not do all these bad things. So does that mean that they were keeping God's law? Jesus would say, no, they were breaking it left and right. But you're like, how? I see it. They're, they're, they're doing all the right things. Because it's not about the outward. It's about the inward heart. It's about the motive. Can someone go and feed the poor? Can someone go lead worship? Can someone stand up here and preach a sermon and be sinning while doing it? Yes. Because it can be done with a heart that's not of worship to God. Now, Paul uses the example of covetousness in his own life. And so in light of that, in light of what he's saying about his own covetous heart, let's use covetousness as an example to demonstrate this point. Let's say that you covet someone else's possessions. And most of the time, you'd be able to covet without anyone even knowing about it, right? You can covet their possessions and no one's going to say a thing. Maybe over time someone's going to notice your covetousness in you, but most likely a majority of the time you covet and nobody even notices. And no one says a thing and no one realizes. Why? Because often it rests internally, not outwardly. And the same thing could be said about murder. We're like, well, no, usually you can see murder. Yeah, but according to Jesus, no, what? The murder can happen in your heart, right? You hate your brother. You're committing murder in your heart. The same thing could be said about adultery. It could be happening in your heart as you lust after someone else. It is internal. And if it is internal, then who can tell you that you have covetousness in your heart? Who reveals this to you? And Paul saying the law. The law is the one who reveals this to us. It is the law that helps us accurately judge and discern the sin within our own hearts. And that's why we need the law. Because God's law reveals his standards of righteousness. And therefore, it reveals where we fall short of those standards. And therefore, it reveals the sin in our own lives. So do you see the purpose of the law? It shows us our sin. Are you thankful for the law? It helps us understand that we have sin within and that we are indeed sinners. 
People argue and they, de- and they debate what's right and wrong. Are, are, are we our own judge? Do we determine what's right and wrong? Is, is, what I, is what's right for me wrong for you? And, and, and we can kind of decide ourselves what's right and wrong. How do we know? This is how we know. This is why we need the law. What does God's word say? Well, this is what God's word say. Okay, then this is right. Or okay, then this is wrong. When we look into the law of God, it reveals to us a big problem that we have. And that is sin. It reveals that our sin resides within us. That's not just what we can see on the outside, but that we have a sin problem within our very own souls. That, that inward heart and motive that other people can't see, but the law sees right through it and says, look at what the law says. The law says you do have sin. We must remember. We must remember that as we seek a solution. We must remember that as we seek to fight sin. See, this applies to both the Christian and the non-Christian. Both. Christian, we still struggle with sin, do we not? When the law reveals sin in your life, how do you go about fighting it? We can put all these external practices and disciplines, and they'll help for a while, but they're only going to act as a mere band-aid, truly, to our problem. You might struggle with pornography, and so, so, so you ground yourself from the electronics and say, well, okay, I'm not going to have these electronics. Well, then what? You may struggle with being angry at your parents. And so you limit your interactions with them, right? You hide yourself in your room. So you say, oh, I don't want to yell at them. And so, so, so you limit your interaction. You, you don't talk to them. Then what? Sure, these things help for a time. But it's not getting to the root problem. How is it then that you truly rid yourself of your sin, Christian? Non-Christian, this applies to you too. The law to show you of your great sin problem within So non-Christian, what is it that you can do about it? Doing more good works to outweigh the the breaking of the law. Saying, well, I've broken the law, so I've got to do more good works to outweigh it. No, that will bring you no good. So non-Christian, how is it that you can truly rid yourself of your sin? Well, the answer to the Christian and the non-Christian is the same. We need the gospel. We need the gospel. The only way our sinful heart can be made pure and acceptable to God is through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, giving us a new heart, washing us clean by the blood of Christ. We need that first. And the only way we can have true victory over our sin is by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, giving us now new desires to no longer sin, but instead to obey God and his law. So we are to be thankful for the law because it reveals our sin, the sin that resides in all of us. So the purpose of the law is, one, that the law reveals sin, but secondly, that the law awakens sin. That the law awakens sin. And we see this in verse 8. The law awakens sin. Paul wants to make clear that the law is, is not the cause of sin. The law is not responsible for sin. And the law is not sin itself. 
But remember, they have a relationship. The law awakens sin. It is the sin that already resides within the person that when faced with the law takes the opportunity to sin against it. That's what he's getting at at verse 8. Okay, keep that in mind as I read verse 8. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, did you notice that interesting claim that Paul makes at the end of verse 8? Look look what he says again. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What is he saying here? Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Is he suggesting that, that there was no sin until the law came? Is he suggesting that law created sin? Is he suggesting that if it were not for the law, there would be no sin? That sin would indeed be dead? No, not at all. Paul is saying that sin is dead in the sense that it's dormant. That it's not fully active. Not until faced with the law does that sin that already exists within become aroused and stirred up, awoken. It's not that sin was not existent in that person. It's that it was not fully active. The rebellion has been there all along. It's not created by the law. It's aroused by the law. That sin is awoken now. And we then see what is really at heart when faced with the law. See, the word Paul uses for opportunity in the beginning of 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity, that word opportunity is a word used as a starting point, typically of an expedition. Like, this is our starting point. This is our launch pad for the expedition. The sin within, it sees the law and uses it as a launch pad for all kinds of evil. That's what he's saying. It's taking that opportunity and it launches all kinds of evil when faced with the law. You guys have seen this before. You tell a kid not to do something. And they maybe didn't even think about doing it. Until you said, don't do it. Right? It was, it was dead in them. It was dormant. They weren't going to do it. But as soon as it became law, I'm going to do it. Right? Growing up, I'd often have a pool in my backyard. My mom liked to have a swimming pool in our backyard. And we bought a house. We, we've had, we had so many houses. We're always moving. If we had a house and there wasn't a pool, then we'd get a pool built in. Okay? And so I remember growing up, you know, I, we know I know how to balance it, you know, scrub it, clean all this stuff. And... I mean, I don't know if you've seen the little vacuums, right? You put it in there, and then like, ooh, it kind of goes around, it cleans it, all this stuff. No problem. We've had it for years. For some reason, one time we got a new pool, and we put the vacuum in, we see it going around like that. My parents never said this before, but they said, when they saw, they said, don't mess with the cleaner, don't write it, don't do anything, just leave it alone. What do you think I did the next time I went in the pool? No. Did they cause me to sin? No. That sin already existed in me. That law that they created, they just aroused that sin within me. See, it was there. But as soon as they said, don't write on it, I said, oh, I'm writing on it. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying here. 
Now, just because the law reveals sin and just because it arouses sin, it does not make the law evil. It does not make the law sin. The criminal here is not the law. The law is not what did wrong here. The criminal is sin, right? The salt was not bad. It was the person who put all that salt in that friendship bread. (laughs) Sin is the one who who faced with the law. Now see the opportunity. Sin inside says, oh, I see that law. And I'm going to see this opportunity. It's going to be a launch pad for this expedition of evil. And I'm going to sin against this law. See, we are naturally born sinners. It's not that the law made us sinners. The law simply revealed and it stirred up the sin that already existed within each of us. The law indeed is good. It is the breaking of the law that is evil. You see the difference? I mean, just take, for example, human law. When someone who's convicted and tried for murder, it's not the law that's at fault. Like, whoa, that law should not say that person murdered him. No, it is the murderer who, who killed who's at fault. It is the one who broke the law, not the law itself. And so on a grander scale, how much better is God's law? And to say, well, is it sin? What are you talking about is God's law sin? How dare you even say that? How dare you question that his law is bad? And how much eviler is the breaking of his law? Like, how dare we take it lightly or point fingers and and just, like, blame shift and even blame shift to God and be like, God, look at your law and how bad it is. Like, what are we doing? How dare we even do that? The law is not bad. The law is good. The law has purpose. And its purpose is to reveal sin to us. And the purpose is that it awakens the sin within We see the purpose of the law, but then we see the fruit of the law. Verses 9 through 13. We'll see two aspects here in the fruit of the law. The first is this, that the law exposes the death that already resides within. Verses 9 through 11. The law exposes the death that already resides within. We're going to be jumping back and forth. In a couple of passages, so just be ready. If you have your Bibles, you can be keeping your finger in this in Romans. We'll start with verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul says that he was alive apart from the law, and then the law came, so then sin came alive and he died, he says. What is he getting at here? Remember who Paul is, and rather who Paul was. Paul was what? A Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was the best when it came to following the law. He was zealous for the law, right? I mean, he was good. He was not apart from the law in regards to knowledge of the law. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, he he knew it frontward and back. I mean, he knew the law. So much so that he would consider himself blameless to the law and therefore had a right standing before God. He's like, yeah, I'm blameless, and so I'm right with God. If you have your Bibles, you can keep your finger in Romans, but turn to Philippians 3. I'm going to start reading verses 4 through 6. Jim touched on this a little bit last week. Philippians 3, Paul's writing this. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
And he begins listing these things in which he obeyed the law perfectly. Okay, He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Listen to this. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not only did Paul know the law, but he kept the law. Right? God told Paul to do something. No problem, God. I'll do that. If anyone can be made right before God by keeping the law, it was Paul. So Paul, he had great confidence in himself in keeping the law. But then something happened. Something happened and he realized he had it all wrong. Look back at Romans 7, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. See, Paul believed that his keeping of the law secured eternal life for him. He's like, yeah, if I keep this law, I have eternal life. But instead, it secured eternal death for him. It was the opposite. But finally, the law awoken in his soul. Like we said right before, right, the law awakened sin. That happened in his life. He had known the law. He had known not to covet. It wasn't a, a lack of knowledge for the law. He would known it from youth. But there came a point when he began to truly understand the law. He truly understood the breaking of the law. Sin came alive in his life. And he was able to see himself through the mirror of the law. And revealed to him the brokenness of his own condition that he had fallen short of the glory of God. And this broke him. It broke him so much that he uses the words, I died. Right in verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. All that he thought he built up crumbled at his feet. Just worthless. Going back to... Philippians 3, 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, right, all this stuff, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen to this. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, he says not from the law. Not the righteousness that came from the law. That's wrong. Paul came to the realization that everything he thought that he built up through the law, he says that's actually worthless. It's garbage. Now he has known Christ. And he knows that his righteousness is not found in him keeping the law. That's not where his righteousness can be found. But instead it's found through faith in Jesus. There was a time in which he, he viewed the law the wrong way. Instead of viewing it as a means of revealing his own sin to himself, he viewed the law as something that, that he's kept good enough now to earn God's love and favor. There was a time in which that's how he viewed the law. He was deceived. Look at verse 11. We're back in Romans 7. Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. He was deceived by it. And as a result, it killed him. 
How was Paul deceived? By believing that he could keep the law in order to be made right by God. That's how he was deceived. Deception has been one of the enemy's greatest weapons since the beginning, right? You can bet he still uses it today. He's the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. Have you been deceived? You know what's hard about being deceived? You don't know you're deceived. Otherwise, you wouldn't really be deceived. So I ask you, have you been deceived? Probably everyone here said no. Because you said yes and you weren't deceived. But have you been deceived? Can you assess that? Can you evaluate that? Like Paul, have you been deceived into thinking that you are acceptable to God because of the ways in which you've kept the law? He was deceived of it. Are you too deceived? Do you have a list like Paul's that we read in Philippians chapter 3, right, that gives reasons why you're loved by God, why God accepted you, why you're a Christian? Well, this is why, because of this and this and this and this and this. Sadly, many people that grow up in the church have a list of self-righteousness, of reasons why God loves them. People in the church, I'm saying Christians and non-Christians. There are many non-Christians who in their self-righteousness believe that their righteousness will, will, will earn them something with God. But they're blind to the truth that they need Christ. There are many non-Christians in the church. There are non-Christians in this room that believe I have some kind of self-righteousness that makes me right before God. Because I've kept the law good. I've kept it like this better than most. And so I'm good with God. And there are many Christians, many Christians in the church, many Christians maybe even in this room, who have truly been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, yes, and yet they go back to self-righteous mindset, that they're saying, now, now I need to build up the self-righteousness in order to keep God pleased with me, or or in order to be a mature Christian, now I need to just build all this self-righteousness. Guys, self-righteousness is a self-contradiction. There is no such thing. There's nothing righteous within us. There is no such thing as true self-righteousness. It does not exist for us. And it's sad that people outside the church and people inside the church, they don't understand and they don't accept this. I was talking, I was rather, I was overhearing someone at the gym uh, uh, earlier this week uh, who's very involved in in a church, uh, at, at his church. And he said this, he said, there are no bad people in the world, just good people who haven't had opportunity. And then the guy he was talking to was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's only good people who just haven't had good opportunity. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? There's no, have you read the Bible? Have you just read Romans 3? That says no one is righteous. No one's good. Not one. Like, We've been given plenty of opportunity. What do you mean we just haven't had good opportunity? What do we do with our opportunity? We take the opportunity, says, we seize it, and we sin against God. We break the law. That's what we do with our opportunity. There is no self-righteousness within you. There is either the righteousness of Christ that covers you completely, his righteousness, credited to your account, not your self-righteousness, but Christ's righteousness on your behalf, Or there's your dirty rags that you offer to God and say, here, God, accept this. Don't you want to take this? Look at my righteousness. That's it. There is no true self-righteousness. 
So when we look at the law, it shows us we are dead inside. And there's no righteousness within us. And lastly, the fruit of the law shows us that the law points us to our need for Christ. The law points us to our need for Christ. Verses 12 and 13, let me read it for us. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul's conclusion is that therefore... The law is good. It is because of the law Paul was able to understand his need for a savior. See, as long as Paul thought he was doing good in regards to the law, he was on his way to eternal death. Just like those who said, well, Jesus, I did this in your name, and I did that in your name, and I did this and I did that, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. But it was when the Holy Spirit awoke in Paul's soul to understand the law correctly and to see his breaking of the law that he was then able to see clearly the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. And this is what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand the truth of the law and to therefore bring us to our knees in desperate need of Christ. You see, this is the point of the law. This is the outcome of the law. This is the goodness of the law. Is that it points us to Christ. The law was, was never meant to be a ladder in which we climb up. The law was meant to be a mirror in which we see ourselves and we therefore see our great need for a Savior. This is the ultimate purpose. To drive us to faith in Jesus Christ. The one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. That he might cover us with his righteousness. How are you handling the law? By using it as a ladder to climb up? If this is you, you are misusing the law. Deceiving yourself. And are damning yourself to hell. Or are you using it as a mirror? Do you see the law as a mirror and you say, Oh, wretched sinner that I am! I am filthy! I am, I am unrighteous! I need Jesus! That's how we are to handle the law. So let me be clear. The law was not meant to save you. The law was meant to point you to Christ, to show your desperate need for a Savior. The law has never saved anyone. And it never will. If you are here today, and you think of yourself as, I'm a fairly good person. You think of yourself as someone who's kept the law pretty good. As someone who's measured up to God's standard better than most. And believe that therefore God accepts you and loves you because you've kept his law. And you don't truly understand the law. You don't truly understand yourself. What has happened is like Paul. Sin seized the opportunity and has deceived you. By thinking you are fine and you've earned eternal life through keeping the law. And you instead, though, are perishing and have earned eternal death. I urge you to use the law correctly and understand that you've broken it. 
and that you cannot make yourself right before God by keeping it. You know, it's not uncommon to think highly of ourselves. I think in reality, we're much worse off than we typically imagine. We often do have a very light view of our own sin. This is very problematic. Because the less we have a true reality of our sin, the less we understand our true, desperate need of Christ. It is those who know they are dead in their trespasses and sins that know they need a Savior. It is those who know that they are fatally ill that know they need the great physician. There's a story of a great professor by the name of John Gerstner. One day he was teaching on the wickedness of man. At the end of the lesson, after he's just, you know, just drilling them on, on how wicked people are, a woman came up to him, held her index finger and thumb about an inch apart, and said, you make me feel this big. And he responded by saying, Madam, that's too big. That's too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? And he was right. The person who does not see himself as someone, as a lawbreaker, or does not see himself as a wretched sinner, the person who sees himself as righteous, does not see his great need for a savior. We are all lawbreakers. We are all wretched sinners, and we all need Christ. No exceptions. The good news is that Jesus kept the law, that Jesus never sinned, and that he offered his life as a ransom to all who believe. Praise be to God for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, because he is our Savior. As we close tonight, we reflect on the goodness of the law. While the law cannot save, while the law stirs up the sin within us, while the Christian is now dead to the law, the law is still good. There's still purpose and fruit found in the law. And it starts by us accurately assessing and viewing ourselves in light of the law. Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, how are you to interact with the law? How are you supposed to interact with the law? Now that you've been that that, that, that you've seen and you've understood the law and, and you've confessed your sins and you've turned to God in faith and repentance, like now now is the law useless? Like, like, like that's done with. Is, is it are, are you done? Not at all. Christian, we still must interact with the law. We still must see that we fall short and that his grace is still with us every single day. Christian, we must not become prideful. We must not become self-righteous. And we must never forget his grace. Do not think for a second that you've outgrown the grace of God. Even as a new creation, even as a regenerate person in Christ, do not look at the law and say, I'm doing pretty good. Look at the law and say, thank you, God, for the blood of Christ and his righteousness that covers me. I am forever dependent on your grace. The law is good, Christian. Good for us to continue to see our great need for Christ. Even now, daily. 
non-Christian, how are you to interact with the law? The law is meant to show the impossibility of us achieving any form of righteousness by keeping the standard of the law. We can't do it. It is therefore meant to show us our utter desperate need for a Savior and the forgiveness that we need by trusting in God's mercy and grace. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, look at the law and see that you fall short. Look at the law and see that you sin, that you have sin residing within you, and that apart from Christ, you are destined for eternal death and eternal wrath. But in Christ you have hope, you have forgiveness, and you have eternal life. I want to close tonight in silent prayer and reflection on these things. Let it be quiet for a while. I want to give you guys time to really reflect. So don't worry, that's been quiet for a couple minutes. I'll close this in prayer. But if you're a Christian, use this time to see yourself in the mirror of the law and to thank God for his grace and his forgiveness towards you that you would now be accepted by God and seated at his table for all of eternity. If you are not a Christian, maybe you need to use this time to see yourself in the mirror of the law and see your desperate need for Christ, to confess your sins to God, asking him to forgive you of all of your sins and to place your faith in the saving work of Christ. Everyone, use this time, a couple minutes of silent prayer. Really reflect on these things. Pray to God, and I'll close this in prayer.